Welcome to Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson. This podcast is a work in progress about every working person's work in progress, namely our quest to be fully human in a working world that all too often makes us feel like machines in which we often don't even have time to think. And that in the words of Studs Terkel, too much feels like a Monday through Friday sort of dying. By the time you listen to this podcast, the documentary film, The Social Dilemma, will be, by the standards of the entertainment and social media industries, ancient history. It came out on Netflix during the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic to a captive audience quarantined at home watching television and film on streaming services and staying in touch with each other on technology platforms like the very ones the film critiques, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Instagram, and so on. The film largely garnered positive reviews from critics with an 86% Rotten Tomatoes score and the public with an 83% audience score, but it is now old news. Arguably, the film was old news even when it was new. It puts forth, for example, well-known claims that social media can be manipulated by hostile outsiders, that social media marketers manipulate us, that social media can spread both information and misinformation and that social media can adversely affect our mental health. And even though we knew all of this, even after Americans began watching the film on Netflix in 2020, we still allowed foreign interference in our elections that fall. We bought more products we didn't need that got delivered directly to our doors. Misinformation still led to an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in 2021. And amidst these troubles, and sense of lonely isolation, we arguably became more dependent than ever on social media for reminding us that we had friends. I'm here today to talk about The Social Dilemma with two guests, Shuli Du, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of New Hampshire, who recently reviewed The Social Dilemma for the Journal of Business Ethics, and Lisa Avendroth, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of St. Thomas, and Academic Director of the Business in a Digital World Initiative. Shuli, before the title and credits of the film, former social media employees interviewed for the film appear speechless to answer the interviewer's question, what is the problem? They've agreed to be interviewed because they know there is a problem, but they have trouble putting it into words. The title of the film refers to a dilemma which in ethics usually means a choice between two options. What, in your view, is the dilemma? So there is this uh, classic story that you can have three wishes. After you got the first two wishes, you realize that these are not really what you want, or they have unintended consequences. So the third wish is invariably, please undo the first two wishes, and you're back to where you started. So this is certainly not the case with social media. We do not wish to undo social media because it plays such a vital role in our life. The problem is that social media, on one hand, is so wonderful and essential, but on the other hand, as the film shows, is so manipulative and controlling. So back to your question, Christopher, the social dilemma for the big tech company is, should they continue the current business model to get more profit and get more power? Or should they do the right thing and reimagine the future of technology to make it more human-centered? 
And the social dilemma for individuals is should we continue using these free services but spend an excessive amount of time on these platforms? Or should we stop using the social media but risk being socially isolated? Sir Shu Li, that was interesting. You talked about a dilemma facing both individuals and organizations. And I think, Lisa, your work really focuses on organizations and their leaders um, regarding operating in a digital world where there are both opportunities and threats. So Lisa, in your view, why should business leaders care about the social dilemma? Uh, Well, to start, I've always been a strong advocate for the triple bottom line, the idea of people, profits, and planets, considering the full cost of doing business and and to truly be sustainable for everyone. You mentioned in the introduction, we have this business in a digital world initiative, and our North Star in that initiative is to develop leaders who understand the enormous power and potential of emerging technology, such as social media, and its impact in business and society, and leaders who can responsibly harness that power for the common good. So when I think about why should business leaders care about the social dilemma, part of it goes back to the triple bottom line for me. And part of it, I go back to my roots as a marketing faculty and say, you know, we need to focus on the customer. Customers increasingly evaluate and purchase from companies and brands that do good, that walk the talk, if you will, and they will avoid and sometimes even punish companies that do bad. We used to think about a wide range of issues of what might be good or bad behavior, but increasingly you hear the words privacy, trust, security, inclusivity, sustainability. And these are increasingly the differentiators that customers care about. So the idea of, as Shuli said, reimagining a more human-centered, or for me, a more customer-centered, user-centered approach to social media would be in the customer's best interest and be a differentiator for the firm that they would want to then engage with that company. So I would hope that maybe we would have solved the social dilemma by now. After all, as I said before, the film is now old news. In fact, when we first had the idea of having this conversation, one question I asked you was, is the film too old to bother talking about? And I think you both said, essentially, the issues are ever-present. So I'm wondering if you can put these ever-present issues into the context of of your careers as teachers and researchers. Can you tell us a little bit about what you study and why? Maybe Shuli first and then Lisa. As a marketing professor, I do research on corporate social responsibility. So this is quite similar to what Lisa just touched on about the triple bottom line. So um, I study how companies should address social and environmental issues and balance the business interests with societal well-being. So in general, I'm interested in paradoxes. So usually the common perception is that business and society, you know, they are kind of um, contradictory. So they consider the relationship between business and society as a zero-sum game, where a gain for one party is a loss for another party. I trying to kind of really... Uh, examine the relationship as a positive sum game. So I'm trying to examine uh, this relationship as a positive sum game where both sides can be better off and can cultivate a kind of symbiotic relationship. So there is actually increasingly agreement among scholars and managers that indeed companies can do well by doing good, by addressing social and environmental issues. Companies as a result can be more innovative. 
they can sell more products because consumers are actively looking to make a difference from their purchase choices. And at the end of the day, the companies, these socially responsible companies can be more profitable. However, in the context of big tech companies and social media platforms, I think this conversation about juxtaposing business and societal interests is just starting. And I feel this documentary play a very useful role in raising the public awareness and kickstarting the conversation on what big tech companies should do and how uh, both the companies and individuals should kind of think about the important concepts such as um, privacy and the role of human autonomy uh, in an environment where technology is increasingly becoming more powerful. Thanks, Julie. How about you, Lisa? Ah, so I can talk both about my research and my teaching. Uh, I was thinking about this, and I remembered back to about 10 years ago, I did some work with a colleague, James Heyman, on word of mouth and the marketing incentives that are paid to influencers to influence their social media audience and the issues around disclosure with that. So I had kind of this lingering thing a while back. Right now, my research is more on the competencies for business in a digital world. So how do we prepare professionals and students to go out into this digital world. And in that, we see the human element as a key aspect. And that human element includes things like transformation management. And that's not just how do you transform the organization, but it's also thinking about your worker and your customer. It includes cultural agility and empathy, things that are more uniquely human responsibilities and and talents relative to machines. Uh, And then the two big ones that get closer to ethics are to access the intended and unintended impacts of technology, and then to manage the usage for the common good. So that's the research side. On the teaching side, uh, I've started teaching a new course on emerging technology and business, where these implications of emerging technologies for human and society are woven throughout. What we've heard in talking with industry is that you have these people doing innovations with technology, and that ethics and the implications kind of comes as a check at the very end. And my view is that we need to be integrating those considerations all throughout. So in the course, when they're first learning about technologies and the trends and how they're being used, they are presented with information on ethical concerns that are being raised and regulatory issues that are coming up. When we then get into frameworks for thinking about ethics and regulation and impacts of things, um, I have three different sets of of readings that I really like. One is uh, Benedict Evans who really says, you need to think about the problem you're trying to fix. What is the problem you're trying to fix? And I think that relates to the social dilemma. But it's interesting. He kind of breaks it into three categories. Is it about tech companies being bad to other companies? Is it about tech companies being bad to customers? Or is it about bad people using technology in bad ways? If you think about that separation, you have different solutions for each problem. So let's make certain we understand the issue we're trying to solve. Another one I include in my class is uh, Farhad Manju, who is a reporter who often deals with the ethics of technology and has been a guest speaker at St. Thomas. And he talks about something called the gadget's worst nightmare. When an innovator is imagining something like, for example, a uh, ring doorbell system, they are imagining all the positive potential this thing can have. And they don't often take the time to think about, oh my gosh, this could be used by a domestic abuser to keep his or her spouse in the house. Okay, so they just don't consider the gadget's worst nightmare. So how do you get people, and I like that phrase because it's pretty simple to think about and just say, okay, I need to pause and say, 
How might this go wrong? What does that world look like? And the third is um, something called the Ethical Operating System or Ethical OS divided by the Institute for the Future and the Omidyar Network, where they identify eight risk zones associated with technology and innovation as a toolbox, really, to say, how do I think through the potential implications of this new technology in this application or in this context? So I, I teach about the trends, I teach about these frameworks and help them build that skill set up. And then I run through a couple of specific scenarios, one around privacy, such as the doorbell, um, but more right now into DEI issues, racism and bias and how that gets perpetrated by um, algorithms and technology, as well as how we might use technology to try to overcome some of those. So I'm hearing from us together, cautious optimism. I think we're all optimistic that the relationship between business and society can be a win-win, but we're cautious about whether we have figured out a way for emerging technology to be that win-win. So we'll get into some of the potential losses that we experience with social media technology in a few moments. But first, I'd like to proceed along the optimistic path for just a few minutes. In fact, Shuli, in your review of this film, you say that technology can be, quote, an emancipatory and democratizing tool capable of empowering individuals to achieve their goals and fulfill their dreams. Can you say more about what you mean by this? I think information technology is nothing short of a miracle. Uh, so I always uh, look back uh, like to the time when I was younger. So I grew up before the advent of email and still remember the days when I had to you know, mail letters and wait a week or even longer to get replies from, uh, from my friends. But not everything is real time and only a click away. And I think particularly we feel the benefits of technology during the COVID, current COVID pandemic. Social media and Zoom uh, keep us connected. We are able to carry on teaching and students are able to learn in a socially distanced world. Uh, Netflix keeps us entertained uh, and Amazon delivers everything we need without leaving our house. So we all admit that technology is really nice, nice and make our lives much easier. So by emancipatory and empowering, I really mean that information technology can level the playground uh, because information and social media are free and easily accessible to everybody. So, uh, so it really kind of you know, democratize uh, different uh, social groups in a certain way. It certainly has the power to do that. So we hear lots of stories, for example, entrepreneurs are able to raise money for their business ideas on crowdsourcing, crowdfunding sites, and students are able to access online lectures by world-famous experts. Uh, and this, the list can go on and on. The technology has enormous power to do good for society. Thanks. And Lisa, I'm going to ask you to build on that a little bit. You've already waxed poetic about some of the benefits of technology, but I'm just going to ask you a bottom line question. Is a digital world a better world? I go for that cautious optimism. I really believe it can be. Uh, I agree with everything Shuli was saying about democratizing. I think it totally has the power for that and what it does in emerging countries and among low-income consumers. Right now, we saw with COVID, the ability to have access to the internet influenced your ability to have access to your education. 
Um, but I think it, it's truly an enabler. But one thing I was thinking about was a little bit different from my perspective. And if we think about, you know, AI and machine learning, we often think about, oh my gosh, it has all these biases built in. But I want to take a moment and step back and talk about humans because humans are biased. Humans have all these natural flaws. So I got my PhD at Duke, and there the focus was on adaptive decision-making and behavioral economics. Dan Ariely was a classmate of mine, and he points out in his book that humans are predictably irrational. We are affected by context and wording and time of day and the weather and our mood or interest level, and the list goes on and on. We also know that individuals, humans, carry biases. We make faulty assumptions. Some of these biases and assumptions fly under our own radar. We aren't even aware of them. We face competing priorities for our time. Christopher, in the podcast introduction, you referenced a working world where we often don't even have time to think. And that is true. We can't always and don't always bring full resources to bear. We are faced with information overload and choice overload, even though we have all this information and choice in our pockets and our phones. So if you now think about the world of a smart agent coming in, powered by AI or machine learning, it can access and process more information more quickly and reliably than we humans can. It can learn your preferences and work on your behalf to navigate all the information that's out there and point you to what's most relevant without wasting your time. It isn't affected by weather or mood or time of day. Most importantly, it can free up humans to focus on more important tasks. Note that I don't see the world that's either humans or machines. I think the future lies in a world where we think about humans plus machines, each doing what they do best. So when you talk to people about AI, they'll often say it's not just artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. It's augmenting the human's capabilities. So I think there's, there's room to really think about how they can augment and do some of those things that help us and get us past our own biases. And granted, we have to keep an eye on them to make certain they're not being biased. But I also think we need to be careful of holding machines to a higher performance threshold, forgetting that we ourselves are flawed. All right. So I'm going to try an awkward reality check. And if it's too awkward, we'll just edit this out of the podcast. But I want to see if you put your behaviors where your optimistic mouths are. Are you both social media users? Um, by the way, I'll just mention to our listeners that I found out when inviting you both to this podcast that you actually go way back to when you were both at Boston University. So have you, for example, stayed in touch on Facebook? No. <laughs> so Lisa, so that is my fault. I so back to what Christopher is asking us. So I do not. I'm not a heavy user of social media. I'm a very selective user. It's not like I think it's just out of my lifestyle. I watch YouTube videos too. I so I watch YouTube videos on topics I'm interested in. You know, random things like traveling or like a fitness, uh, financial planning. So it's but usually I have a I have a goal like what I want to watch and uh, YouTube because has. YouTube has tons of videos on everything. So I use that quite a bit. Uh, I usually do not uh, watch the recommended videos by YouTube. Uh, you know, it always has those autoplay. Um, and I use YouTube videos for teaching as well. You know, I always pick some, uh, you know, advertising uh, commercials or like tutorials for how to use Quartrics, tutorials on SPSS, like uh, as a supplemental materials for my students. And I watch Netflix a lot, maybe too much, uh, particularly during the last year. 
And I think Netflix in general, going back to what Lisa mentioned, so Netflix has a great recommender system. So I think it is really good because considering how many videos they have on their platform, it is very good at recommending the ones that I might like. So AR does know my preferences, sometimes probably better than I do. And I use some other, you know, like a WhatsApp and so on. But I try to limit my use on social media. I do not feel like the social uh, interactions, uh, maybe it's one-sided. My, my, I feel like the interactions on social media is, tend to be really superficial. And uh, uh, I prefer more like a, you know, texting or, or the phone call. Or like a, yeah, but I should uh, get in touch with Lisa much more. So <laughs> We will need to make a goal for that, Julie. Um, so I, I do use Facebook, um, and it is probably my dominant social platform. Um, I would say though, that I'm also selective in how I use it. For me, it's about that sense of community. I, when people talk about, you know, all the fake news that's on Facebook, I don't get it because most of what's in my feed is my niece and her kids and what's going on. My friend from college, my friend from high school, um, people that I work with, other people, where are they going? What are they seeing? What are they doing? What are they thinking about? So for me, it's that sense of creating community with people that without it, I probably wouldn't still be in touch with. So that's important for me. And then I use LinkedIn a lot. And that really is a separate, that's where I think of my professional network and build relationships there and can connect with people. And I find that useful. Um, My husband is the YouTube user in our family. And I think back to the democratizing power wow, the, the amount of learning you can get on, on YouTube is amazing. And it's just in time learning. You need, you, know, you need to know how to make pasta if you've never done it. Um, yes, I have a, a younger son living with us back from college. And I said, you want me to teach you to cook? Well, why? Why would I want you to teach me to cook when I want to learn how to cook something? It's on YouTube. So that's just the automatic, just in time. There's always information available for you there. So yes, I use social media, but I use it selectively. And most of the new ones, I don't even know what some of them are. Personal anecdote, when I was a teenager learning for the first time how to make ramen noodles, I looked at the back of the package and I had to ask my mom and sister, how do I know when the water is boiling? YouTube would have come in very useful back then. Um, So I see where your optimism comes from. It comes from um, using technology for entertainment, using it for networking. But as I alluded to before, the film is very much focused on the costs of social media, of which there are many. We're not going to enumerate all of them, but we'll explore some of them. One is addiction, which perhaps entails all the others. Once we get caught in a social media feedback loop, it becomes a reality. We crave it more. We make consumer and citizenship decisions based upon it, and so on. Let's listen to what Anna Lemke, an addiction specialist, says in the film. Social media is a drug. I mean, we have a basic biological imperative to connect with other people that directly affects the release of dopamine and the reward pathway. Millions of years of evolution um, are behind that system to get us to come together and live in communities, to find mates, to propagate our species. So there's no doubt that a vehicle like social media, which optimizes this connection between people, is going to have the potential for addiction. Julie, your review of the film says that it 
quote, discusses many symptoms, but not the underlying causes. Let's talk a little bit about the underlying causes. Why is social media addictive? And do you think its creators intend it to be so? I remember those uh, advertising campaigns that persuade people to quit smoking. And in the beginning, uh, the anti-smoking ads focused on the health risks of smoking and it did not work. And then the ads focused on uh, portraying smokers as socially uncool, socially undesirable, and it was very effective. So we humans are social beings and we crave social connections and approval. Uh, That is perhaps why we get this dopamine release, as you mentioned, and feel very happy when someone liked or commented on our posts. We also need time to be alone and to engage in deep and meaningful work, uh, which I I think social media is not the right platform for that. Um, A lot of us spend too much time on social media because of, precisely because of the addictive feature of social media, uh, such as the features such as like buttons, uh, photo tagging functions. Uh, So they kind of, uh, they serve as a reward system or kind of, you know, a a reward system where you're trying to get a prize for. Uh, So these features are there not because they are good for consumers. Uh, but because they can dramatically increase our time spent on the platform. And that, so the time spent on the social media platform is the dominant me- uh, metrics used by social media companies as to whether the app is successful or not. Um, so the problem uh, why the social media is so addictive is that uh, we individuals are not the customers. We are not paying any fee to use the services. Uh, we are actually the products. So our attention, so social media companies, they get, they're trying to get us spend as much time on social media and sell our attention to the advertisers. And the advertisers are the paying customers. And the social media companies serve the interests of advertisers. So I think that is really the fundamental reason why the, you know, we create a social media and sometime along the way, it has lost its direction. And kind of the, the app developers say, they're trying to find ways to get us spend more time on it. And they kind of come up with lots of features that are potentially very addictive. You just opened my eyes to my failure ever to think, why am I getting this stuff for free? Lisa, what do you think about the same question? Uh, I agree that we are as consumers, we are the product, not the customer. And yet I also know that we are the customer in some ways too. I think, I think it's more complex than that. Maybe I'm just the eternal optimist. Uh, the like button, yes, it's addictive. And, and for me, one of the really powerful episodes in the movie was when the girl is, is changing her appearance and how she feels about how she looks. I think there's a lot of we look for affirmation out there. On the other hand, we also have people that you know, that like button says, or when I send the one that shows, you know, a heart looking like caring, oh my gosh, you've had a death in your family. I can't do anything to make it better, but I want you to know I'm caring. So for me, it's almost that it, it, if you look at the data, so Civic Science is a, is a website I like to follow. And they asked on social media, are you more of an active poster and commentator, commenter or more of a lurker? And only 4% of people are active posters. Um, 20% are more of a lurker, but you might be a lurker who adds a like or who adds. So I think it's still that low level of involvement way of communicating and, and forming community. But back to the question about do I think social media is addictive? 
Do I think they use mechanisms to make their sites more attractive, to build that audience up and to make it sticky, to maximize the amount of time people spend on site? Absolutely. There's no doubt that there are mechanisms in place to make people want to be there and want to stay there. Um, can I claim that the, that the creators intended this? I don't think anybody can know what someone's intent is. And again, back to, did you think through all those ramifications? And the truth is it's probably more complex. But for me, where I get hope is, do I think we can teach business professionals to consider unintended consequences and make more ethical decisions and responsible design and implementation? Absolutely. So you've both used the term unintended consequences, and it reminds me of my favorite social media novel, Frankenstein, written in 1818 about a scientist who creates a monster that wasn't intended to be a monster, but became a monster because it wasn't tended to. I think of that as a really powerful metaphor for our inability to control social media. Am I being too pessimistic right now? I don't think you're being too pessimistic. I think that social media has grown to be much more complex in all the different avenues and ways of using, ways of faking information, uh, ways of manipulating. Um, and I think we have, I think one question that I had, even as I read Shuli's review, is whose responsibility is it to do that tending? You know, you could say it's, it belongs to us, the, the customers, the community that use it. You could say it's up to the company. You could say it's up to the government. I think there's, we're still navigating. And Shuli said earlier, we're kind of at this, we're just starting this business and societal interest in what's a, a good use of social media and how do we think about regulating it or rethinking it or remod, rebuilding it. Um, and I don't think we've had those questions along the way. We are in a reactive state instead of having been proactive at the beginning. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Lisa. Uh, so, yeah. So the Frankenstein uh, syndrome, like that's a really good metaphor for what we are facing right now. I think, uh, particularly with you know social media being powered by artificial intelligence, and uh, it has been just making so much progress in this field, and the algorithms and the process of how the AI making decisions is so opaque, right? I think only a small percentage of you know AI scientists, data engineers. They understand, they maybe understand, or maybe not, because all this learning is, you know, neural network, right? It's kind of hard to put down in a regression form. So it is very hard to understand, for us to understand. And uh, we sometimes don't know the objectives of these AI algorithms. Like what, what objectives are they serving? Like are they trying to increase customer satisfaction? Or are they are trying to kind of increase the prediction of our behavior, whether it's good behavior or harmful behavior. So I think the thing with AI is that it is so advanced and it is so non-transparent and it has lots of issues. Some, as Lisa mentioned earlier on, for example, it has biases embedded in because it's a reflection of our existing societal, you know, social societal structure, right? So uh, it is built on the existing data. So it has lots of AI uh, biases. It can, has a potential. I think it's already doing that. Uh, you know, in medical field or in financial AI, it is exact kind of, I think it's exaggerating uh, 
So there's a social inequity. So in the sense that disadvantaged population, for example, minorities or uh, people with darker skin, like they cannot get as accurate um, diagnosis if we are, we are using AI, and they are more likely to be rejected if they are applying for financial mortgage and so on. So we see there are lots of potential negative consequences, but because of the nature of AI, it's very hard for human to kind of intervene uh, and to kind of really pinpoint what is the problem. So we are creating a Frankenstein, I think. And uh, that's also why I think this uh, conversation uh, we are having now with you, Lisa and Christopher is so important. I think we have to discuss that and be trying to be proactive before the, the monster become really, really powerful. Speaking of the monster becoming really, really powerful, we've been talking about addiction, but addiction combined with misinformation can multiply the impact of that misinformation. And that's another theme or cost that the film focuses on. It shares examples of social media users adopting fanciful political conspiracies, believing that the COVID-19 pandemic was fictional, taking up arms against political enemies based on false information that was spread on social media. We've learned in recent years about the social media bubbles we live in, as Roger McNamee, a venture capitalist, shares in the film. Over time, you have the false sense that everyone agrees with you because everyone in your newsfeed sounds just like you. And that once you're in that state, it turns out you're easily manipulated, the same way you would be manipulated by a magician. Shirley, you credit in your review the film's potential to, quote, raise awareness among the public of the potential problems with social media. But is there any evidence that social media use by consumers has improved as a result of our increased awareness that social media has a downside? So I think uh, before the movie, like most of us have a vague sense of the negative sides of social media. We kind of know the manipulation, we feel the manipulation by social media. We feel we are spending too much time on, on the social media and we know some of the information are not necessarily true or they are biased, one-sided. But I think most of us uh, did not fully appreciate the magnitude of these negative effects. And we do not fully realize how prevalent uh, these effects are in our society across the globe. So I think the film really did a great job in, you know, kind of uh, systematically revealing a range of negative effects of social media and the raising awareness of the dark side uh, of this technology. And it is kind of really sounding the alarm that like we have to do something now before it is too late. Um, so I watched this documentary together with my two school-age kids. Uh, they are, you know, one is in middle school, one is in high school, and they use social media. So I want them to be aware of the negative sides. And I believe awareness is the very first step um, for, for the public to take some actions. Um, in terms of whether we are getting smarter, getting better in using social media, uh, it is probably too early to tell, I think. I don't think it will be an easy battle because as the film mentioned, so all these big tech companies have teams of engineers and scientists. They're trying to using, for example, A-B testing, uh, using lots. They, they know a lot about how to get our attention, how to spend more time on social media. So 
when we have some solutions, they will find other tricks uh, to get us uh, glued on the screen. So it will not be an easy battle. And back to what Lisa mentioned earlier, I think it's really, you know, different sides, right? Educators, parents, and students themselves, companies, like it has to be an action from all sides of the, of the society. Lisa, you work with adults and young people using social media. What, a, what is your view on whether we're using our awareness to good effect to inform more responsible and safer use of social media? I don't know if you can hear a deep sigh on the microphone, but deep sigh. It's So I did some research last night um, to kind of look at the, are, are we making any impact with this? And it's interesting. So one thing, and the data bore this out, yes, I'm a data geek. Americans have a complicated relationship with social media, period. And you can dig into that so many ways. So if you look at Pew Research, they had an April report on social media use in 2021. The percentage of Americans using social media has remained stable over the past five years at about seven in 10 Americans using social media. If you look at Facebook users in particular, which is the number two platform under YouTube, 70% of Facebook users are online on Facebook at least daily. So we're not stopping using it. Meanwhile, an October report from Pew Research, 64% of Americans say social media negatively affects the way things are going in the country today. And the views, this negative view varies only slightly by users and non-users of social media. So the users, people like me, like you, like Shuli, if we're using it, we're aware that there are these negative consequences. But we're also aware of the positive aspects. And that same report acknowledges that social media can highlight important issues that may not get attention. It gives voice to underrepresented groups. It makes it easier to hold powerful people accountable. So there's this, again, this mixed relationship. I mentioned earlier, I also like the, the website Civic Science, which is, it's a geek's dream site. Um, and they had a May report that came out on social media influencers. And I love this. Again, my earlier work was on word of mouth marketing. Trust in social media influencers is low. It peaks, peaks at 5% of users. And that's among the age group of 13 to 17. And that trust in social media influencers decreases with age. Yet 8% of Americans report purchasing a product or service because of an influencer or a blogger's recommendation. And those are the ones that are aware of it. If you look at this among that 13 to 17 year olds, if only 5% of them trust social media influencers, 13% of them still say they bought as a result. If you look at it by income, people that make less than $50,000 a year, 9% of them are influenced by social media bloggers. So there's also this difference in education. But to me, the bottom line is that we as Americans are aware of its negative impacts. Our trust in it is low. We know there's misinformation. We increasingly know we're in this echo chamber. We're hearing people that are echoing the same things we're thinking. And yet we continue to use it because we still see some positive benefits. So now I see why you began your answer with a deep sigh. Um, it's almost as though we are willingly manipulated, and that's another threat that the film talks about. Um, one commentator says that social media in the 2016 U.S. presidential election was not hacked by the Russian government, rather 
They used legitimate marketing and advertising tools provided by Facebook to advance a nefarious agenda. And here's what Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, had to say when he was asked whether Facebook impacted the results of the 2016 presidential election. Oh, that's, that is hard. Um, you know, it's the, the reality is, well, there are so many different forces at play. Essentially a non-answer. Julie, you're a marketing professor. Marketers have always manipulated human psychology to persuade people that they need to buy products and services they don't actually need. How is social media marketing manipulation different? So um, in advertising, we know that the companies are trying to sell us the products. So we are skeptical and we do not believe every claim in the ads. So in the motive of advertising is to sell consumer products. And this motive is very clear and very transparent to us. And therefore, we as consumers, we keep our guard up. Versus on social media, uh, we are usually, most people go there to hang out, right, to kind of be part of the community. So the social media manipulation is very secretive. We do not know we are being manipulated. Like, for example, when we see the news feeds, we do not know they are one-sided and they are kind of specially curated based on our preferences, based on what the company knows about our preferences and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, personality, past browsing history, and so on. And lots of times we do not know we are actually participating in A and B testing. And as a result of those massive scale experimentations, they will continue to change the features of the social media. So, um, so one aspect for social media is that it is secretive. And another aspect, I think, is because of the age of big data and the digital traces, like everything we do online has been tracked, analyzed. Um, so we left, we leave a huge amount of digital traces behind us. And these big tech social media companies, they know a lot about us. And uh, with the AI and algorithms, uh, they, they can predict our behaviors. So they can easily influence us and predict our behavior. So right now, between the social media companies and individual users, there's this huge power imbalance, which has not been present in the traditional advertiser versus consumer setting. Lisa, you're also a marketing professor. What else do you have to add? Oh my gosh. So when Shuli was talking, I was just nodding away. So back in the 90s, a Freestead and Wright wrote an article about the persuasion knowledge model, and it's exactly what Shuli said. We've learned over time what a persuasion attempt looks like in traditional media, and we know to bring our defenses to bear, to be skeptical. Social media, it's really hard to know what's authentic versus what's paid or manipulated communication. So we're less likely to process it and defend you know, against it as a persuasion attempt. So I, I think that part is spot on. Um, I think the other issue is that there's a lot of similarities in the techniques that we marketers and others bring to bear. So I'm not going to say politicians aren't doing this. Politicians are marketers. Everybody's trying to influence and persuade people. Um, the underpinnings of what we're doing might be, they're doing might be similar, but the magnitude of the impact is far greater. We have more data. It's more immediate. It's more selective uh, in that you're getting this personalized information. You're getting fed what, what it's learned you're most interested in reading about. There is no one truth anymore because we're all looking at different versions of the same story, different images being served to us. 
So we, we've lacked that ability to see the big picture. And it's happening so quickly that we just, it, it's just so much more immediate. So we've been talking a lot about problems, but let's talk about solutions. At one point, footage of Zuckerberg testifying before lawmakers shows him suggesting the deployment of artificial intelligence tools to track misuse of social media. And in response, data scientist Kathy O'Neill says, We are allowing the technologists to frame this as a problem that they are equipped to solve. That is, that's a lie. People talk about AI as if it will know truth. AI is not going to solve these problems. AI cannot solve the problem of fake news. Google doesn't have the option of saying, oh, is this conspiracy? Is this truth? Because they don't know what truth is. Shuli, you write in your review that the film provides few solutions to the problem it identifies, but you offer some suggestions in your article, especially for business ethics scholars. Can you share them with us? So, um, so this is a clearly a complex problem. So at the end of the review, I try to kind of uh, take a step back and see like, what we can do. So we, I think we have to take a, you know, a really a multi-pronged approach to address this social dilemma. So in the review, I urge the business ethics scholars to do, some, to do research on some fundamental concepts, such as data privacy, uh, the role of human agency and autonomy in the context of big data and AI, and really articulate what are some of the ethical principles of smart technologies. So these are all issues and concepts that just recently emerged due to the widespread um, use of social media and also kind of the, the increasing power of AI. And I also urged companies to really re-examine the social contract between business and society and their role in protecting stakeholders, especially consumers, employees. The current theme in our conversation is that for social media, consumers are actually not the customers. We are the product, right? So what, what is really as a responsibility of companies? You know, what is the role for companies in terms of taking care of consumers? And also with, the, with the AI, there is also a big impact on employees when AI is able to take over a large chunk of tasks from humans. So there, is a big, uh, there are some statistics showing that many, uh, you know, many jobs will be automated and that can have a big impact on employment. So a substantial percentage of humans no longer have a job. That can have lots of implications because we rely on jobs to fulfill many of our psychological needs. And lastly, so in addition to what business ethics scholars can do, what companies can do, and we should also really raise public awareness of, you know, of the importance of these social issues and encourage your individual stakeholders, right? Um, parents, uh, young students, uh, members of the community to kind of engage in grassroots stakeholder engagement and activism. And I think these grassroots campaigns can be really a uh, powerful impotence for, uh, for uh, government regulation and a responsible business. Thank you, Shuli. You know, Lisa, Shuli described these solutions as multi-pronged, and our way as scholars of examining business is inherently multi-pronged. We look at the behaviors of individuals 
organizations, and markets. Can you talk about those levels? And at each level, is there a most important thing we can be doing to solve these problems? I keep going back to the who is the we that should be the doing. Is it, is it, you know, and I agree, you need to have these levels, but you go back to, is it, is it the firms? Is it the users? Is it society? Is it executives? Is it the researchers? Is it technology itself? Um, I think for me, and I, you've heard this at the beginning, that I think, think for individuals, it's really important that we teach about uh, the human element in technology, that we need to teach our future leaders as individuals the importance of simultaneously considering the ethical consequences, the unintended consequences of our decision-making as we design these solutions and as they navigate a problem space. Um, when I look at, I'm, you talk about organizations, if I were to look at the technology side of organizations, I think there are technology solutions. You can do things with public and private keys as to what data you're going to let, let companies see. Um, if you look at what's happened with GDPR, how many times do you now see a website a, you know, pop-up come up and say, you know, we're going to be collecting your data and you just click through it because you want to get the answer to the thing you were looking for. So I think simply informing consumers, hey, this information is being collected is not enough. It's in a way like when we read, you know, medical labels and it has all these warnings. We don't read the warnings. We assume that by and large, it's going to be okay. And we kind of ignore that. So I, I think on the individual side, we want to empower the decision makers in the organizations, we want to encourage the decision makers and the designers to incorporate these ethical considerations along the way in their design. And on the individual user, we want to inform them, of course. Uh, I think maybe it's a coming up with simple you know, icons or things you see so you know this is happening and you can make an informed choice. I don't think we can outright say you can't look at this or you can't do this because that's a little too paternalistic. Uh, within the organizations, I mentioned the technology side. I think it's also really important to think about culture change to help change the view that we need to be looking at not just you know business profit impacts, but also think about the societal and the environmental impacts. We need to think you know make that important across an organization. We need to do more training and upskilling as well for when you know machines do take over more jobs, and it is going to happen. How do we? train people to work alongside them or give them other skills. And then on the market side, um, I'll go back to, to uh, Benedict Evans and regulations, is make certain you understand the problem you're trying to solve. Um, because every solution also has some unintended consequences. So I make certain you know what the problem is and that your solution is adequately addressing that problem and not just creating other problems. So you talk about a human element of a digital business world, which really brings us back to a recurring theme of this podcast, namely the value of the liberal arts to principal leadership. In fact, this is the first time that I can remember that a feature-length film for a popular audience was reviewed in a scholarly journal. And Shuli, as the journal editor who accepted your review, I encouraged you to make it accessible, not only to scholarly specialists, but to the general public. There's an irony about this because we're saying that entertainment can make us smarter, but the social dilemma is about social media making us dumber. Why did you decide, Shuli, to review a popular film for a scholarly journal? So, um, 
I recently published a paper on the ethical challenges and opportunities of artificial intelligence. I have been like, really following along on corporate social responsibility and as AI is becoming more prominent on the landscape. So I ask myself, what is the role of companies? How can we use the lens of CSR to examine the social and ethical challenges of AI? So that kind of really got me into this whole, you know, the AI and its social uh, ethical paradoxes and so on. When the Social Dilemma film came out, I thought it really captured a lot of the ethical and social issues of social media, big data, and artificial intelligence. You know, and it really kind of brings this uh, whole stuff issues to the general public. So reviewing the film for the Journal of Business Ethics is a perfect way to engage both business scholars and non-scholars, and start the much-needed conversation on this topic. Journal of Business Ethics has been like, really emphasizing the importance of liberal arts disciplines in studying of business ethics. So disciplines such as philosophy, um, sociology, psychology are really critical in kind of understanding how, how stakeholders and companies are making ethical decisions. So I, I feel it is a very good uh, fit for the review of the film. Well, I'm so glad you did review it. And um, Lisa, I want to ask you about another dilemma facing educational institutions. That's the balance between the liberal arts and the increasing emphasis on STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math. You and I research and teach at a university with a liberal arts core. Do you think that business has strayed too far from the liberal arts? Um, I personally do not, at least as we teach it here at the Opus College. We hold four common learning objectives. Business acumen is just one of them. The other three have a direct tie to the liberal arts. That's critical thinking, leadership, and ethics. I think a lot of the people in the liberal arts would be surprised to see the number of dotted line connections through that, it, that it extends through all the business disciplines back to the liberal arts. Marketing uses psychology and, to the dismay of some of my students, a lot of math. Uh, when we talk about a situation analysis, we're asking them to look at the political, the economic, the social, the technological. So we are asking students and teaching students to consider this broader landscape and to think critically, act wisely, and work skillfully for the common good. So, to me, I don't see it, uh, but I also think that the tools in business can be used for good or evil. Uh, and I think a lot of people can see some of that evil and think that's what we're teaching and miss that there is that strong liberal arts core and that common good element. Well, speaking of the liberal arts and the performing arts and the relationship to entertainment and technology, the film uses music to dramatic effect, and it's often very ominous music. But thanks to both of you, I continue to be an optimist that we will solve the social dilemma. So thank you, Shuli and Lisa, for joining me today for this work in progress. Listeners, if you're interested in reading Shuli Du's full review of The Social Dilemma, it was recently published in the Journal of Business Ethics and will be available for free through July 2021. You can find a link to it on the website of the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principled Leadership website. 
Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson has been brought to you by the Melrose and the Turo Company Center for Principled Leadership at the University of St. Thomas.